He brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Those verses 43 to 45 of Psalm 105, verses 23 to 45 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, June the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 11, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 17 to 28, and the first 11 verses of the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. So uh, we've got the people who have complained, and they've come against Moses and Israel, and they've questioned their leadership, and they've done all that. And now we're at a place where... um, it, it, it's time for once and for all to put these these rebellions to bed. It's time to be done with these things. So the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, so sticks, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to the father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. In other words, there's no choice for the tribe of Levi who's gonna, whose staff is going to be here. God made that choice. The other 11 um, families are going to choose a representative, uh, and they're, they're going to give them their staff, their walking stick. <clears throat> for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony, right before the Ark of the Covenant, where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Then I'll make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. So there's, I mean, this is one of those things where there's, there's going to be no question that God has done the choosing because these are sticks these people have carried around in the wilderness already for whatever period of time they're there for walking sticks. And so they're, they're long past the ability to produce buds of any sort. So he's saying, look, I'm going to put this to an end once and for all. And you kind of want to say, well, why didn't we do this in the beginning, right? I mean, it's because the people would have forgotten. It wouldn't have mattered, ultimately, that, that this time had to pass, in or, and they, they had to get some of this stuff out of their system. And they had to show themselves unworthy of coming into the land. They, they had to have the opportunity to do it the right way, um, and they chose badly. So he spoke to the people, Moses spoke to the people of Israel and their chiefs, gave him their staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among the staffs. Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe albums. I mean, there's this abundance in that, right? I mean, it didn't just bud. There's not just some little thing there that that you could mistake and go, is that a bud? Or I'm not sure if any of these staffs have really budded. That one's got that funny thing on it, but but I'm not sure, you know. So God leaves no doubt, right? I mean, it sprouted, it put forth buds, plural, produced blossoms, <laughs> and then bore ripe almonds. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> you, can just, you see Moses coming out with these 12 staffs and, and saying, do I need to tell you which one was chosen? <laughs> but, it, but his name is on it. So, I mean, it's, it's clearly this is Aaron's staff. And, and it didn't just do that. It did all these other things. So there was God left no doubt that he had chosen Aaron. But what he also did was leave no doubt that he did something remarkable here. <clears throat> so 
Moses brought out the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. So, in other words, this sign is going to be there. Uh, it's a perpetual reminder to these rebels that, that's, that, that Aaron was chosen. They don't question me again. If you question me again, it's not going to go well for you. But God's doing this as a way of preventing their deaths. They will know with certainty Aaron was the one chosen to be the high priest. It's important that those people see this and that they know that this is what it was. But God didn't just give them a sign. He gave them a, a dramatic sign that Aaron was his chosen person in that position and role. Now, remember, Moses would have been in the house of Levi, too. If, if Aaron is, so is Moses, because, well, they're brothers. So it, Aaron's staff was chosen, but he was chosen to be the one who perpetually goes into the, the tent and makes the sacrifice necessary, the, the atonement necessary for the people's sins to be forgiven. So he's going to perpetually, his line perpetually will do that until, well, the last 2,000 years because there hasn't been a temple. There's been no place to make sacrifices. There's only one place you can make sacrifice. That's at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, there's a big movement now, actually. There, there's, a, there's a group called the Temple Institute, for instance, and I, I listen to a lot of their podcasts and I read a lot of their stuff. But their main initiative um, is to rebuild the temple. And so right now they're trying to work out the red heifer because that they need a red heifer to, to be the atoning sacrifice. And it's got to be perfect and spotless and all that kind of stuff. So they've got plans. They, they have big plans for when they can rebuild the temple. They're prepared to do so. It ain't going to happen <laughs> because that's not the way it ends. So, you know, it, it's nice you have that plan. Come to Jesus and you'll see. <laughs> So in the gospel today, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside because they, they're, they're with a group of pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. So he takes the 12 off to the side, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, we're pretty aware of that. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They had to. They didn't have any choice because the Jews, they can condemn him to death under the law, but they can't carry out the, the penalty. They don't have the authority from Rome to do that. Only the Romans can do this do the penalty phase, and they have to do it under Roman law, not under Jewish law. So at some level, this kangaroo court doesn't have the power that it that it believes that it does, and it doesn't have the power that it needs to carry out the sentencing. You can sentence him to death. But you can't carry out the penalty itself because Rome only can do this thing. But it doesn't stop there. He's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified by the Gentiles. And we know all these things came to pass. And then the most important piece is he'll be raised on the third day. I say it's the most important part because that's the thing that seals the deal. right? Because the, the, the crucifixion is a crucifixion of a righteous man. It, it's, an, it's the gravest injustice done in human history. But if it ends there then it has no meaning. It has a symbolic meaning as injustice, but that's not the final part of the story, right? The resurrection tells us the meaning of what happened on that cross, <clears throat> and it certifies Jesus as unique in the world. Therefore, when in Revelation 5, John sees the, um, 
the lamb looking like it was slain before the throne, and it alone was worthy in heaven and on earth and under the earth to receive the scroll and to receive glory and praise and honor from heaven. So that we need all that. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in the kingdom. Man, I mean, my kids grew up playing sports, and I thought daddy ball, you know, where, where parents just thought, oh, you know, junior here should be the one playing instead of that person. He, you know, he, he deserves to bat fourth. He deserves to pitch. He deserves to whatever it was they wanted. You know, he ought to be the one doing this. But, man, that what she's asking here is so far beyond that. It's just almost impossible to imagine the presumption of James and John's mother here. I mean, it had to be embarrassing, right? I mean, here here comes mom, but but maybe not. Because next what happens is Jesus asked, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said, we're able. Holy moly, guys. Really? I mean, they're the same guys who wanted to call down uh, fire from heaven on the Samaritan village that refused to allow them to stay there overnight. But they've they've gotten too big for their britches, to say the least. And Mama's bought into this thing, too. And, and so Mama comes and, and wants to, to say, hey, make my boys your chief guys, right? When you come into your kingdom, when you become a king, make them your right and left hand guys. Make them your, your chief advisors because, well, they deserve it. These are grown men. <laughs> it's absolutely stunning that, that she would do this and that they seem to accept it at some level. And, and they've set themselves up as something great. And remember, we've, we've seen this on the road when after Jesus was transfigured even and after he was able to heal the man's son that nobody else could heal. They're still talking about who's the greatest among them. These guys are still, even after they've seen all the stuff that Jesus did, even after they've seen the transfiguration in James and John's case, and, and they heard the voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus while they were asleep. He's talking to <laughs> Elijah and Moses, and, and yet, yeah, 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 we can do what you do. Dudes, <laughs> what is wrong with you? It's the same kind of challenge that's being put down by the budding of Aaron's staff, I mean, it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to change everything, right? I mean, no, hey, we're, golly, you know, we just feel, well, stupid at this point that, about that conversation. So anyway, he says, you will drink my cup. You're, you're going to die. You're going to die for the cause. But to sit at my right hand and left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared by my father. That choice was made long, long ago, fellas. I don't have any say-so in that. I'm not the one who really sits on the throne and makes that decision. That decision was made by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Well, that's probably the nicest way you could say it. I mean, you could imagine this, that the reaction of the other ten. Are you serious, man? We've been here all this time. Peter probably had a better case than anybody because whenever Jesus went aside with, with less than the whole twelve, it was always James, Peter, and John. So he probably had a better case and a claim to this. And, hey, I'm the one who made the confession. I'm the one that he said was Peter, and on him I'll build my church. Um, who are you guys? You know, you're presumptuous. But but all ten are upset, and I'm sure they were, and it probably tells you that nine of them were upset anyway whenever Jesus took away the three. But Jesus called to him, to called them to him, and said, you know that the rulers of the authorities lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. I mean, just keep abasing yourself. Just keep considering yourself less than others. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you got to keep pressing all that ambition down into some other place because Jesus stands alone and everybody else is no better than a servant. And so we're, he flattens the organizational structure. Jesus is at the top. Everybody else is a servant. doesn't matter what your title might be. You might be a priest. You might be a pastor. You might be a, a reverend this or whatever your title might be. You might be a bishop. You might be an archbishop. You might be the, the pope. But mm, that's an office. Generally, what he says is, is that we're all equal in the kingdom of God. And that's exactly how Paul understood it. And that's the reason whenever Paul wrote letters to the churches, he, didn't pres- he presumed on his apostleship in one way. And that is that, that he had authority over the churches that had been given to him. But when he spoke to them, he called them brothers. And he was clear always about his relationship to them as human beings never changed. He had an authority in the church, but he didn't have authority over people in that way. He says, even as the Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the only place in the world where the path to greatness is the path of downward mobility and humility. And if you can't get over that, you might get a place in the church, but you're not going to keep it. There's just no way of you keeping that. And then you're in for a rude awakening at some point when you have to be shown that you ain't all that in a bag of chips. And that's just exactly the way it's going to happen. And, and it's going to be bad. I mean, you know, pride goeth before a fall, and it does. It may take a long time, but ultimately you'll find out. <clears throat> It, it, and if you if you think you're something, then you have it completely wrong, just like these guys did right here, just like Corridathan and Abiram did. Be satisfied with the place God's given you. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he says, therefore, since we, all of us, all of us, every single one of us, I'm not setting myself above you or different from you, we have been justified by faith. I wasn't justified because I was a Pharisee, because I was a teacher, because I was any of those things. I was justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, Paul says, look, I, I stand in the same place you do. Nothing changed ever. You know, it's like Bear Bryant used to tell his teams at Kentucky when, when they would see a team that was better than them. He says, you know, look, boys, they put on their britches one leg at a time just like you do. And, and that's the thing that we need to remember in all this is that Paul didn't set himself in that place. He only set Jesus in that place. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I mean, we haven't even—our merits and our, our ability and, and no—we uh, can't brag on ourselves. We Only through Jesus have we obtained the grace that, in which we stand by faith, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you? Come on. Be honest. <laughs> Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So what he's saying is, what's your goal here? If your goal is something other than hope, then, then you've got it wrong from the start, and you won't be able to deal with suffering. There'll be no place in your theology for suffering, because... Suffering is the first step, he says, to getting to a place of hope. 
And it's because we see the world for what it is at that point, right? I mean, we can clearly see that this world is not geared <laughs> for uh, the kingdom of God. It's geared towards something else. And until we experience suffering for the kingdom, or any suffering really in some ways, should lead us to him. But the more we suffer, he says, the more, more endurance you get. So that's this, the more you suffer. The, but endurance produces character. And it does. It produces character one way or another because there's no shortcut to character. And, and there's nobody's character is developed by success. It's shown and proven by success, but it's developed in the crucible of suffering and difficulty. Apparently, there's a lot of work still to be done on my character. <laughs> he says, for while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. I mean, you think of Secret Service agents, for instance, who, who give their lives for the president, who, who, who have decided, I will put my life, his life, ahead of mine. And he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God, Christ died for us. In other words, we were still horrible and separated from God. We were still spiritual adulterers, and Christ died for us. It's an amazing, amazing reality that he would do such a thing. He says, for a good person, you might die, but not for horrible people like us. I mean, who would do that? He says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So when we were separated from him, he provided the necessary means for our justification, which is his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats splattered on the altar once a year so that we might be reconciled to him and our sins might be forgiven. No, his blood shed once for all on the cross at Golgotha is our justification, and it's our permanent justification. And so he says, so as great as that is, this justification, then we're going to be saved from the wrath of God, the final judgment. We will be saved by his life. So it's not just the cross. It's also then his life, his resurrection. But it's also his, his life prior to the cross because we're saved to become like him. More than that, he says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He said it's all about him. It is absolutely all about him. We all stand as sinners saved by grace. We, we've not, I've not achieved anything in my ministry that contributes one iota to my reconciliation, to my justification, my, or my ultimate salvation. Nothing I've done is to achieve any of that. I do this because of what he has done for me in gratitude that I might bring glory to him. And that's the way we need to understand our lives. Now that we've been reconciled, now that we've been saved, now we have an opportunity to show gratitude for the grace that we have received.